Let's turn to John chapter 3 and read some of those settled words that have been preserved to us. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Amen and amen. amen. Because of the time already spent in verses 1 through 3, let's go straight to verse 4. If we have occasion to come back to any of the thoughts or concepts or words in the first three verses, we'll do so. But this morning, I want to move on into verses 4 and 5, at least. Nicodemus responded to the Lord Jesus Christ, who had mentioned a new birth, a being born again, in verse 3 by asking, how does it happen to an old man? Does he go back into his mother's womb and get born a, a second time? Speaking of a natural birth. Nicodemus had heard metaphorical language that God chose for him to hear about our regeneration being described as being born again. He latched on to the word born, failed to recognize the metaphor there, applied it literally to his physical, biological birth to a mother. Because he had just heard metaphorical language for a doctrine that he'd never heard before. And so we'll give him a little bit of mercy in that he hadn't heard this doctrine before. He hadn't read any systematic theologies about regeneration or being born again. And so he fails to pick up on a spiritual metaphor here, though if he had sat attentively with the Jews from chapter 2, he would have learned that Jesus likes metaphors when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. That's the previous issue there in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. The Bible is full of metaphorical spiritual language. It uses the word body in a number of different ways. It uses the word house and church and save, uh, flesh, in a number of different ways. And you better pay attention when you're reading the Word of God 
and Nicodemus needed to pay attention hearing the Lord Jesus speak to him. Men always have questions and they have their solutions when they should listen to learn more wisdom. Nicodemus should have asked, Lord, what do you mean by being born again? Instead of leaping to a naturalistic conclusion that was totally wrong. The value of his response in that fourth verse is for us to listen and to think spiritually. Because the Bible tells us that we should compare spiritual things with spiritual to arrive at truth. 1 Corinthians 2.13 tells us that. It's one of the principal rules of Bible study, and that is to compare the Spirit's use of words. Not your use of words, not man's ordinary use of words, but how the Holy Spirit uses words. And it's taught there in the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 2. Like the futurists and the dispensationalists today, those are two prophetic groups that are Zionists, that believe the Jews are still God's chosen people and they have this whole scheme of future events to come that will restore the Jews and the nation of Israel to world preeminence. That will put the Lord Jesus Christ on a natural throne in a little nation on earth at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea and so forth and so on. The Lord Jesus Christ will come a second time before the man of sin in their false ideas. Then he'll come a third time after the man of sin. Then he'll wait a thousand years and have his battle of Armageddon. You know, and so there's so many comings and goings and battles and wars yet to come that the Bible doesn't know anything about. Because the Bible just points us to one coming day of vengeance on the wicked. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 told us about that. There shall be a resurrection of the just and the unjust altogether at one time when he comes for all of us. Those that are asleep in Jesus and those that are still alive. But the futurists and the dispensationalists, they get their opinions by being literalists. If when they read something in the Bible, they take it literally. C.I. Schofield wrote a little book on Bible hermeneutics called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And to them, the most important rule of Bible study is to take every statement of Scripture literally. That's so scary, especially with what I want to remind you of in just a moment. So the Jews tended to be literalists as well. And there was Nicodemus. When they heard the word kingdom, all they could think about is, even the apostles of our Lord... All they could think about is a real king like David sitting on a throne with chariots, with an army, and defeating the Roman Empire and giving them their nation's independence back. That's all they could think of. When they thought of Abraham, all they could think of was the promises to Abraham. Look north, look south, look east, look west. You get all this land. Now all Abraham cared about was heaven that was called Abraham's bosom. Do you understand the huge difference? The futurists and the dispensationalists they disregard Abraham's preference for heaven because re- they prefer earth. Yep. They want their best life now, as someone has recently written. By his use of born and old, Nicodemus is only thinking about a biological birth. He should have wisely asked, Lord, what do you mean by being born again instead of leaping to a naturalistic, literalistic conclusion? Recall how long Elihu listened to Job and his friends before giving his opinion. There's wisdom in that. Elihu was ready to explode. The Bible tells us that. 
He tells us that in Job chapter 32, but he waited. He waited to hear these older men that should have been wiser explain their opinions, but his temperature was rising throughout, and in Job 32, he finally unloaded by giving his opinion. But the point being, he waited. And we should wait before we leap to naturalistic conclusions. Wisdom receives truth with a ready mind, not preformed or skeptical questions. So let's try to learn from Nicodemus that we want to slow down and think about Scripture spiritually and compare spiritual things with spiritual to arrive at the right conclusions. Can I enter the second time into my mother's womb? Well, now that's absurd. What an absurdity by trying to press a natural perspective on spiritual words. And let's remember that. Lord, help us to believe the Spirit's use of words and not to jump to natural ideas. Charismatics cannot believe that Acts chapter 2 is already fulfilled because they haven't seen the moon turn to blood. (laughs) Now in Acts 2, Peter, quoting from Joel chapter 2, quotes some words that the moon shall be turned into blood. Well, because they haven't seen the moon bleeding yet, and with God putting a band-aid on it or something like that, they don't believe Acts 2 is fulfilled when Peter, after quoting the whole passage from Joel 2, said, This is that. You Jews, hearing us Galileans speaking in 15 at least different languages, are the fulfillment to Joel 2, 28 through 32. This is that. Now you've got to make a choice. Do you believe God and the Holy Spirit telling you this is that, or do you, are you waiting for the moon to turn blood? Do we have someone down in the state of Texas that likes to talk about blood moons? Yes, we do. They, they can't get over the naturalistic worry about physical phenomena that might indicate the coming of the Lord when he said he's going to come as a thief in the night and when men are crying peace is when he'll shock them. But they want to be literalists. You know, futurists cannot believe that Matthew 24 is fulfilled because Jesus has not yet been seen by their eyes as a bolt of lightning. Because Jesus said, As the lightning cometh out of the heaven and shineth from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. But if you had been in the city of Jerusalem, you would have believed it came like a bolt of lightning because it overthrew your nation and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and leveled it to the ground. But they're looking for a naturalistic explanation for things instead of a spiritual one. They can't can't believe that Abraham would desire heaven over Palestine. Can you believe that? Heaven over sand. Heaven over a desert. Thank you, Lord. Look at Hosea, keeping your place at uh, John chapter 3, look back to the little book of Hosea. It's after Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Because there's a verse here that I want to repeat. It's been taught to you before, but some of you have never heard it. It tells us that the first rule of interpreting prophecy had better not be to take it literally. It better be the opposite of that. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets. Hosea 12, 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. 
A similitude is a simile, which is another word for a metaphor, which means a word picture rather than express language. God's prophets used metaphorical, figurative language, not express literal language. Do you know how much that verse is worth if you want to study the Bible? You can't put a price on it. Hosea 12.10, God telling us that when you study prophecy and you study the work of my prophets, you better be thinking about metaphorical, secondary, figurative, symbolic intentions for the words. Right there it is. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1 and let's see if it's true in the New Testament. And some of you know where I'm turning when I say things like that we need to pursue this. You know I'm going to Revelation 1, but I want everyone to feel as confident about it. Revelation chapter 1. I wish that people would read Revelation 1.1 before they start asking me questions out of Revelation 14, 7, 22, or anywhere else in the book because of this verse that agrees perfectly with Hosea 12.10. Agreeing perfectly that C.I. Schofield is wrong, that we should understand prophecy in its literal sense. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So what is the book of Revelation according to the first verse that tells us how to interpret it? A book of signs. What are signs? Similitudes, metaphors, symbolic, picture language. It's not to be understood literally. It says so. I could turn you to other passages in the New Testament as well that speak of Jesus signifying things. The Lord Jesus Christ said that he would be lifted up. The Bible says that that signifies the way that he was going to die. Would you get that from being lifted up? Or would you think that he was going to climb a tree or take an airplane flight? He was going to ascend. What does it mean? He's going to be, the Son of Man shall be lifted up. He's going to hang on a cross with his feet not touching the earth. But that's how Jesus signified it. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to hang on a cross with my feet not touching the earth. He said, the Son of Man shall be lifted up. And on and on it goes. And we're told right here in the first verse, be careful when you're studying Bible prophecy because God sends it with signs, symbols, similitudes, metaphors, figures, pictures, word pictures. But... They want to leap into Revelation chapter 20, and it says a thousand years there. It's got to mean a thousand years. Well, it says chain there, and does it mean a chain? Why does it need to mean a thousand years? Why don't they want to run into Psalm 50 and do the same thing, where it says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Who owns the cattle on hill number 1003? The devil? Or does God own the cattle on all the hills, but he uses the word thousand in a way that you use it? I got a thousand things to do today. No, your to-do list has seven things on it. We all understand it. 
But they don't want to because God has blinded their eyes so they cannot understand the Word of God. And He's opened ours to rejoice that in the first verse, He told us what to do with the rest of the book. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen. We want the Holy Spirit's use of words, not our literal naturalistic usage. The Bible's a spiritual book with many spiritual metaphors for us to learn, and so we come to the fifth verse. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water. Our Lord had to answer a ruler of the Jews that was foolishly literal and carnal because of his question about re-entering his mother's womb and being born again. You know, the, the dispensationalists and the futurists are similar in the way that they want to see everything literally. They want to see Israel as the restored nation of Abraham's biological descendants rather than the spiritual descendants of Abraham. What do we like about the New Testament? It tells us if we're Christ, then we're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. Because the New Testament tells us that. And forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thank you, Stephen. It is settled that God's Abraham's true seed is Christ. And if we're Christ, then we're the true seed of Abraham by being in Christ. The seed that was always intended in all the promises made to Abraham. Amazing statements in Galatians chapter 3. We believe them because we have no agenda to maintain. We're not pro-Israel. We're not necessarily anti-Israel. We're pro-Bible. We're pro-Galatians chapter 3. And we're anti-everyone else that's against Galatians chapter 3. Because the Bible told us that we should esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and to hate every false way. They see prophecies like Isaiah 11, the lion with the lamb, which I've mentioned enough times to you, and Haggai 2 is needing literal fulfillment. Haggai 2 says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this latter house with my glory. What's the latter house? Well, it means there's only two houses. There's only two temples of God. There's not three. Don't read anyone that talks about another temple being built in the Middle East. There's a group of people that number about 1.6 billion that aren't going to allow a temple to be built in the Middle East where, they, where now stands the great mosque of Jerusalem. Right. But they're waiting for the heavens and the earth to be shaken. They were shaken. Amen. God shook the way that he was worshipped like a rug to get rid of all the dust and the dirt which was the Old Testament, and the desire of nations did come. The Lord Jesus Christ went right into that ladder or second temple, was held up by Simeon when he was just a little baby, and the last time he left it in Matthew chapter 23, he said, your house is left unto you desolate, and then he tore it to shreds 40 years later. Right. He made peace in that place. That's what it says in Haggai. I will make peace in that place. That temple had its veil rent from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary on Golgotha outside the city limits and said it is finished Amen. and rip. And they want to stick that in the future? The heavens and the earth were shaken. Yep. What, what, how, how can you take the words heaven and earth as being shaken? The heavens are the way that God is worshipped on earth 
in religion was turned upside down and made to be different. Jesus said, a new way of religion is coming. Woman of Samaria, you don't worship the right way in Samaria, and they don't worship the right way in Jerusalem. The Father is seeking true worshipers to worship him. Don't you say similar things? My whole world just got turned upside down. No. You just had a delay in your dentist appointment. Don't. We use, this, we use the same kind of language. Right. It's raining cats and dogs out there. We'll send the kids out to get some new family pets. Symbolic language, figurative language. It's in the pages of Scripture because we all use it, we all understand it, but they can't. They're waiting for this to happen before the desire of all nations comes. The desire of all nations came. He did shake the heavens and the earth. And wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's in Hebrews 12 where Paul said Haggai 2 has been long fulfilled even in his time. But just one quick little aside. You know, when Paul quotes Haggai, he quotes Haggai accurately, which means that Haggai's future tense verbs are in Hebrews 12. But if you're sharp you'll learn to figure that out. In Acts chapter 2, the future tense verbs are, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. That's future tense. Those are Peter's words in Acts 2. I will pour out of my spirit. That's future tense. I'm going to repeat myself. I want you to think about it because I'm not showing it to you, so it's a little harder. Peter said, I will pour out of my spirit. But he's quoting Joel that wrote it way back in the Old Testament. It was only future to Joel. It wasn't future to Peter. Peter's just quoting accurately, and then Peter said, this is that. Not that shall be this, or that shall be in the future, or anything like that, but this is that. And we have a number of those, and the Lord's shown us them to us, and we enjoy them. Except a man be born of water. The phrase here has been the inspired noose to hang many foolish interpreters. And let's rejoice in it. John 3, 5 and the word water has been abused for more heresies than likely any other single verse in the Bible. This verse. And I am excited to stand here before you and to review some things with you that have heard it before and to teach some new things to you that haven't heard it before. That fifth verse, Jesus said, except a man be born of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We have to be born of water. We have to be born again of water. And so that word's been abused. Well over 90% of the world professing Christians, 2.2 billion, one-third, 31%, if you want to be particular, of the earth's population think that baptism is meant by that word water. As soon as you take that word water and make it baptism, for any purpose you are playing with fire and danger and devilish heresies. And the Roman Catholic Church started it and perpetuated it. Most Christians, and now I'm being very nice by saying 90%, it's more like 95% of Christians do not understand the doctrine of baptism, the simplest doctrine in the Bible, to be baptized, to be buried and raised again from water after you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your only Savior from sin. They turned this water into baptism in John 3, 5. The center column references in your Bible likely do it. 
My Oxford Bible has a little C beside the word water. When I go over to the center column and look for the C, it says Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, what does Mark 16, 16 have to do with John 3, 5? I don't know. But they think it's a cross-reference. Why? Because it has the word baptism in it. And this one has the word water in it. Because they immediately go to literalistic H2O and get baptism out of John 3, 5. Here's the danger of study Bibles. I want to warn you about the danger of study Bibles right here for a moment. For the words of men redirect you about God's words, and that's a danger. And the danger is because they're on the same page. That even though you might be disciplined to realize that what's in the box at the top, you know, just the 41 words, it is different from the 410 words at the bottom that are written by men. Just, they're dangerous. I don't like them. You say, but we interpret the Word of God, yes. But the Bible that you bought doesn't interpret it correctly. So there's a huge difference. And it's a huge danger. We don't put our words on the page with the words of God. There are helpful hints at times. No doubt about it. Many times there are helpful hints. But if you're a serious student of God's Word and you listen to the preaching, you're going to learn God's Word without man's words being on the same page with God's words. We want to put God's words in a category of their own. So I mention that to you. Because... Like my Oxford Bible. Now, Oxford, is Oxford associated at all with the Church of England? Well, no wonder then that we have Mark 16, 16 about baptism because the Church of England believes that John 3, 5 is talking about infant baptism. Since being born again, follow with me, we're looking at this verse, except a man be born of water. Since being born again is the argument then baptismal regeneration results. Since Jesus in verse 3 and Jesus in verse 5 and Jesus in verse 8 is dealing with being born again, and being born again is to be regenerated, that is to be generated again with a new nature inside you, a nature toward God called the new man in the New Testament, then that's regeneration and you attach it to baptism, you get the heresy called baptismal regeneration, meaning that when a person is baptized, that's how they're regenerated. That's how they're born again. That's how they're quickened into spiritual life by baptism. Could God have written John 3, 5 differently so that people wouldn't have been led astray by that word water? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes, God could have written John 3, 5 differently. Is your God omniscient? Did God know that 95% of all Christians would get messed up by the word water in John 3, 5? Absolutely, he certainly did. And so he wrote it with the word water. Because if you don't want to submit to the rest of the New Testament and learn that baptism has nothing to do with eternal life, then you deserve to end up being an infant sprinkler for regeneration out of John 3, 5. You say, I didn't know that God was like that. Why did he speak in parables? Why did Jesus speak in parables? For the same reason that I just gave you. 
to confuse men so that they would not understand the truth and be converted. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13. That is what I think I read to you a few minutes ago from 2 Thessalonians 2, that God would send them strong delusion to believe a lie. And that's Roman, Roman Catholics. And that includes especially the heresies of infant baptismal regeneration of the Catholic Church. We know God could have worded it differently to avoid the heretical usage, but he didn't because he wants us to study God's word. Children, do you want to blow apart John 3, 5 right now? Joseph, now you listen carefully. This is not deep. Catholics say that John 3, 5 teaches you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. You just remember the thief on the cross. Did he go to heaven? Yes. Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? No. That's the right head movement. <laughs> the thief wasn't baptized, but he went to heaven that day right. to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just remember that. That's how simple it is. Do you know where you read about the thief on the cross? In Luke. Do you know where Luke is? Five chapters in front of John 3, 5. To get to John 3, 5, you've got to read about the thief on the cross going to heaven without being baptized. So by the time you get to John 3, 5, if you've been fair with God's word and you've read it in order, then you already know that you don't have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Because of a simple little argument like that. Now I just want to bless God right now and remind you about a few other verses in the Bible. Did God know in his omniscience that the Oxford publishers were going to put Mark 16, 16 beside John 3, 5? Did he write Mark 16, 16 so it sounds like you've got to be baptized to be saved? It sounds that way for sure because listen to the words. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Oh, I love it. Why did God write a verse like that? Well, that's not all. How about Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You say, I hope that's it, because you're just building a tsunami of evidence here that baptism saves us. No, I'm not. I'm building a tsunami for you to overthrow with the thief on the cross. How about Acts twenty two sixteen? Ananias looks up Saul of Tarsus and says, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Are there any denominations that you can think of offhand that have pulled those verses together and, and made themselves a little sweet list of verses that teach you've got to be baptized in order to be saved? And we pull those verses together to show what God has done in his Bible that we better study it carefully, all 31,102 verses, so that we understand the five in their list. Right. How about Galatians 3.27? Ye have all been baptized into Jesus Christ. Ah, that's how we get into Jesus, so that we're Abraham's seed is by baptism. There's the Campbellites, the Church of Christ. No, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Is there some other way that we get in Jesus in time by baptism? Yes, we get in him practically for obedience and discipleship. Just like a brother stood this morning in the pulpit referring to Psalm 119 verses 89 through 96 about the word quickening. 
that there is a practical quickening that is totally different from regeneration. Right. What is that called when you take a word and say, this time this word goes in this column, this time this word, same word goes in this column, what is that called in the Bible? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen. We bless thee, God of heaven, Amen. for revealing these things to your babes and hiding them from the wise and prudent. Right. Follow with me. Once the error is made that baptism is to be associated with eternal life, the heresies that follow are legion and terrible. If... Baptism is necessary for eternal life. And 90 to 95% of all professing Christians out of the earth's population believe that. If you make that connection first, because many infants used to die by not practicing Jewish cleanliness and order of things at birth taught in the Bible resurrected about 200 years ago to improve our own birth rates in this nation in Europe. Sorry to get off on that. Many infants used to die, so infant baptism was invented to save them, for these heretics believe the truth about original sin from Romans chapter 5. Do Catholics believe the doctrine of original sin, that we are held accountable for Adam's sin? Yes. So how do you get rid of that when there's babies dying? If every woman is having a, one baby die for everyone that survives infancy, would you appreciate a priest that told you that that baby should be baptized as soon as it's born and you can guarantee heaven for it? Where did that all come from? The false assumption, the false assumption that baptism saves. The false assumption that water in John 3, 5 is baptism. Well, then you start worrying about your babies. We don't worry about our babies. I hope you don't worry about your babies. Your babies are in better hands than they would ever be if they were in your hands. They're in the hands of a living, faithful God. And we deserve everything we get. Because in the Garden of Eden, we told God, we don't care what you've warned us about, and all the descendants of Adam, we'll take the risk. We'll take it on the chin. His blood be on us and on our children. The same type of rebellious attitude toward the God of heaven. I want you to understand where infant baptism came from. The first error was to read John 3, 5 and believe that that word water is talking about baptism. And when you connect baptism to being born again, then you need to get your little children born again so that if they die in infancy, they'll go to heaven because they're under original sin of Adam. Are you with me? I'm telling you, when you make a mistake about one word in the word of God, there can be horrible consequences. The second thing that happens, since much water was not always available for immersion, isn't that true in Israel? Why does it tell us where John had to be baptizing? In John 3.23, it tells us John the Baptist had to baptize in a place called Anan, near to Salem, because there was much water there. Since much water was not always available for immersion, then any use of water became acceptable for baptism by sprinkling, by pouring, by rubbing. Oh, yeah. You understand? Where did it all come from? By looking at John 3, 5, making the word water equal baptism, 
then you have baptism connected to being born again. And if you don't have enough water around to get somebody all the way under and they're about to die, what do you do? You pour a little H2O on their forehead, you pour it over their head, you rub it in the form of a cross with your thumb, and you get them into heaven. We're Baptists. Are you thankful to be a Baptist? Third, since believers' baptism is obvious to some that read the Bible, Catholics aren't all that bright when it comes to the Word of God, so they didn't see that in every case where there's baptism in the New Testament, the person had to believe first, so that's why they were willing to do infants, and you know, no Catholic parishioner had ever read the Bible, so they were willing to believe the priest, and they had never heard anything in church because it was always done in Latin, so they didn't know a thing about anything. But now let's come to Alexander Campbell and his father Thomas, who were Presbyterians who became Baptists, who became the Church of Christ. Since they knew that you had to be a believer in order to be baptized because of the Baptist influence on them, they had to get rid of original sin in order to save their babies. Are you with me? Yeah. Now, now here, we come, here comes a new group of heretics along. They look in John 3, 5. You're born again by baptism. But we know that you can't be baptized until you're old enough to believe. I'm not going to get in that pulpit and tell, no, no, no way am I going to get in that pulpit and tell our women that their babies are under original sin and went to hell because they couldn't be baptized until they were old enough to believe. Are you with me on how these errors take place? So they got rid of original sin. The Church of Christ denies the doctrine of original sin as a Catholic invention. I call it a doctrine of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, that death is in this world. I'd just like to add, death is in this world because of the sin of one man. We should ask those Campbellites, why do your babies die? There's some sin being charged to their account because the wages of sin is death. What's the other way? The age of accountability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like that original sin because it could send a baby to hell because they got to get old enough in order to get baptized because baptism is the way to get born again and to go to heaven when you die. So the other way we can do it is let's just have an age of accountability. I want you to know where these heresies came from. They came from John 3, 5 and misunderstanding the word water. There is no baptism in John 3, 5. Now, here comes another cult. They're a recent cult. To go to heaven, you've got to have one of their baptisms in an underground baptistry at one of their temples. That's the Mormons, 1830. Since a cult like Mormonism is of recent origin, 1830, They had to invent baptism for the dead in order to connect your dead ancestors to Joseph Smith. No, no way, no. I am not going to get in the pulpit and tell my faithful women that all their ancestors are in hell. (laughs) No, No, I'm not. This is how men preach the Bible. No, I'm not going to do that. Joseph, please come up with something better. Okay, we'll do the baptism of the dead and the baptism for the dead. And so the Mormon church has the most extensive genealogical records of ancestry of any private organization in the world. 
maintained in a nuclear-proof site in Utah where they can find your relatives so that you can get baptized by proxy for your dead relatives, your ancestors, that never had a chance to meet Joe and get baptized by him in between his visits to his polygamous harem. This is where it came from. John 3, 5, connecting water to baptism, connecting baptism to being born again, born again to getting into heaven. Therefore, what do you do with ancestors that lived before Joseph Smith lived? You get baptized for them. Where does it all come from? John 3, 5. And I love John 3, 5. And I love the word water in John 3, 5. And I hope that you'll love it by the time I'm done. You say, that's, surely that's the, that's the end of your list. No. If water was impractical because of some particular disease or there wasn't enough there, then Rome has the baptism of desire. As long as you wanted to get baptized, it's good enough as the real thing. And, ba- and Rome has the baptism of blood. If you ever died as a martyr, along with other Catholics, you were just baptized and born again and go to heaven anyway. You say, is, that's got to be the end of the list. No. Rome worried about those women that have miscarriages. Any woman in here have a miscar- ever have a miscarriage? You don't need to nod your head. It can be a painful event depending on how many weeks you've been pregnant with that child. So the Roman Catholic Church invented intrauterine baptism. See, you know, it's very different than preaching in the past. You can go home, use a Google search box, and type in intrauterine baptism. And you can see the devices, pages of the devices, pictures of them, of the devices used for a woman to baptize her unborn child. I'm sure that all of you women are wise enough to figure it out without me using any other words or descriptions. Most of these heresies clearly would have comforted women. And you know what the Bible tells us about the rise of heresy? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, men would creep into houses and lead captive silly women. That means vulnerable women. Women weak to heresies. All these heresies arose from the error of connecting baptism to salvation. Baptism to being born again by John 3, 5, except a man be born of water. There's no baptism here in John 3, 5 for numerous reasons that honest Bible students can grasp. Before I leave that other list, I did have one more. Some primitive Baptist pastors think that water equals baptism in John 3, 5, and I'm indebted to uh, Chris Burton for his experience among primitive Baptist ministers in the state of North Carolina Some primitive Baptist pastors there think that the water in John 3, 5 is baptism because all that's talked about in this passage is entry into the local church. Except a man be baptized by the Spirit's addition to the local church. Unbelievable. I asked him about ten times, are you sure you ever heard? Oh, many times I heard that. It's just hard for me to comprehend. Here's what I have to say about that. Any Baptists that get water, baptism into John 3, 5 are playing with a blowtorch in a refinery. 
If you take baptism into John 3, 5, you are treading on terrible ground. There's no, there's no baptism in John 3.5. This phrase in John 3.5 can't teach something contrary to what the rest of the Bible teaches because we have a rule that says there is no prophecy of the Scripture that is of any private interpretation. Any individual or separate interpretation, it all has to agree, agree together. And all we have to do is flip back one page and we can get rid of baptism in uh, John 3.5. Let's flip back there to John 1 and verse 13. John chapter 1 and verse 13. This is how we're not born again and how we are born again. You know I'm not going to let you forget this verse. This verse is very important. John 1, 13. This tells us how we're born again. Which were born not of blood. It's not racial. Nor of the will of the flesh. It is not anyone making a decision or choice for themselves nor of the will of man. It is not anyone else making a choice or decision for you, but of God. Amen. That's how we're born again. That is a verse you never want to forget. John 1.13, if you're baptized as a baby, then it's parents taking you to the priest. So it's the will of man. But this verse says, it's not the will of man that you're born again. So it blows out infant baptism. If you're an adult believer and you're getting baptized to be born again, then that's your flesh needing to be born again to become spirit. But it says it's not the will of the flesh. So it rules out all those heresies in one simple verse that you should never forget. You should memorize it. You should remember it and you should use it with those that you discuss the doctrine of salvation with. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means where it wants to. The word listeth is used one other time in the Bible. It's used in James chapter 3 and verse 4, where it says that the governor of a ship turns it by its helm wherever he listeth. That means he goes wherever he wants to go. And so the wind blows wherever it wants to blow, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh. That means from where is it coming, and whither it goeth, where it goes. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. We cannot direct the Spirit. We don't know where the Spirit's been. We don't know where the Spirit will be. It blows wherever it wants to, and that's how every single one is ever born again. It's not by anyone making a choice to get to the baptismal, or the baptistry, or the baptismal font. I believe, I believe that you uh, do not need the rest of my verses on this point. Well, just one of them. Just one. 1 Peter 3.21 1 Peter 3.21, my favorite verse on baptism in the Bible because it's so definitive. It says so many things in just one verse about baptism. But you better be using a King James Bible or you're going to find me making three errors because the other Bible versions have corrupted 1 Peter 3.21 three different ways to destroy the th three of the five requirements for a scriptural baptism. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The verse tells us that baptism is a figure. That means it is a symbolic event that shows a picture of something. And that something is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is on the other side of the parentheses. When you're reading English, 
Material that is in parentheses may be removed for you to get the flow of the sentence without the extra material that is identified by being in parentheses. What do you think the parentheses are there for? So that you can remove those words in order to get the flow. So what's the flow? The like figure. There's two figures under consideration. There's the figure of the ark in verse 20 of salvation. And there's the figure of baptism in verse 21. We have the word like that means there's two figures. We have the word also in that first clause that means there's two things being compared because that's what the word also means. It's something else in addition to the first thing mentioned. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does baptism save us? It saves us figuratively by a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does the, is there anyone else in the world whose baptism is a picture of resurrection but Baptists? Baptists bury the dead, bury the baptismal candidate like he's dead, and raise him up again just like Jesus was buried and raised again from the ground for our redemption. So we see that in the verse. But now it tells us that it saves us. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. But it said it's a figure. So in what way does it save us? It saves us figuratively. That's all it does, is save us figuratively by allowing us to show a picture of how we were literally, actually saved. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now in case you didn't get that, we have the parentheses. The first clause inside the parentheses tells us that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. In John 3, there's only two conditions you can be in. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Can you get out of the flesh by baptism? No, because 1 Peter 3.21 tells us no, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Do you see? That verse says Baptism does not put away the filthiness of our flesh, our sinful fleshly old nature. But here's what baptism does do. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, baptism is the answer of a good conscience, which means you already have a good conscience. The only way that you can have a good conscience is that you have already heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it to give you a good conscience a bad conscience is a conscience that is still under the guilt of sin and the condemnation of it. The Bible teaches that in order for you to believe the gospel, you had to be born again. And so I remind you of the three B's of Elder Sonny Piles of Graham, Texas. And it's a beautiful little explanation of birth, belief, and baptism. That's the Baptist order. But you know, the Catholics, they have it all changed around. Catholics have baptism. Then you're born again. Then you believe. So it's baptism, birth, belief. The, the Campbellites, the Church of Christ, have you believe first, get baptized. Then you're born again by being baptized. Fundamentalists and those that many of us came from have belief first. And that causes you to be born again. Then you get baptized. But the Bible order is of the three B's, birth first, then you believe the gospel, then you get baptized, because baptism is the answer of a good conscience. Oh. Lord, we thank Thee. Amen. We thank Thee. Baptism is far too late to help, for it follows belief, which follows birth. 
The only washing we need is being washed from our sins in his blood. Revelation 1.5. That's a legal washing. The only vital washing we need is the washing by the Spirit's word in Titus 3.5. John 3.5. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water. Some think Jesus said that we need to be born of amniotic fluid in order to get to heaven or to enter the kingdom of God. I used to hold that, but it was 40 years ago. You can figure out how old I was. I, I want to be as merciful and respectful and kind and loving as I possibly can be on this particular point. And remember, I just said a bunch of things that are hard for me to do. Some think that Jesus is saying here in John 3, 5, Nicodemus, you need to be born by getting you know from a, from a mother the first time because that's a birth of amniotic fluid and except you're born that way and then you're born of the spirit you cannot enter into the kingdom of god oh here here we go just just briefly it does but we're not born of water we're not born of water when we're born the first time by our mommies we're not born of water we're born of a woman we're not born of water we, we don't come up out of the sea and crawl up on shore and i'm not Please take it in a loving way. Did you see that this past Friday I wrote an update to you that I love all of you for tolerating me for so long? Tolerate me right now. We are not born of water. We might be born after water. We might be born from water, maybe. We might be born with water, but we're not born of it. Because the of in this context is to be born by it. Because it says to be born of the Spirit, which is to be born by the Spirit. The Spirit being the active person in bringing about our regeneration. You can, can you see that in, in, the, in the last part of verse 5? Or in the last part of that middle clause, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. And it says that again in verse 8, at the very end, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So that word of is not with or along with. It means to be born by the Spirit. And water is not the source of our birth. Amniotic fluid is not the source of a birth. Amniotic fluid has to get out of the way before you can be born. I think, I think the order is something like this. Baby hangs in bag of amniotic fluid. The sac is broken by pressure being exerted down against the cervical area of a woman. The water comes out. Whoa, whoa, my water just broke. So all the water is gone, but baby is not yet born. The ordinary way, that's how it happens. Baby's still inside, and baby's got a long time to wait until it gets to the outside world. And it can be a day or two or longer. C-sections usually intervene if it gets to be that long. I've been through this a few times in my life, directly and indirectly. In no sense are we born by water, for it does not assist birth but hinders it. The usual events are for the sack to break and fluid to gush out before the labor starts. Nowhere in the Bible, or the real, the serious labor starts, nowhere in the Bible is there any hint of language supporting such a usage. Nowhere in the Bible, in 31,102 verses, has the Holy Spirit given us an expression about being born of water, meaning being born of a woman, meaning being born biologically, meaning being born physically. Nowhere is that found in the Bible. And it doesn't make sense either because that's not how we're born. We're born by a woman bearing down and pushing and pressing and, and, and a whole lot of other things they do in order to be efficient at that. Forgive me for 
not doing it right, Sherry. You know, in all loving kindness, should we try to find doctrinal value in the mucus plug or the bloody show? I trow not. Furthermore, by taking such a view, are all aborted children then reprobates, since they never got born the first time. You know, and we tend to believe that John the Baptist was born again in his mother's womb. So, let's see, that order is going to be except John be born of the Spirit and of the water. Reversing the order, but uh, let's not go there. I'm just mentioning it as things to think about. There's no reason to assume that Jesus accommodated Nicodemus' naturalism in verse 4. There's no contextual need for it because 3.6 is not referring back to 3.5. 3.6 is referring back to 3.4. 3.6 when it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit is referring back to verse 4, where Nicodemus was trying to introduce getting back inside his mother, and Jesus is blowing that out and stating that there is another birth that I am talking about altogether at this point, and there's only one birth that I'm talking about, and it is a spiritual regeneration of a person. There's a very good interpretation for these words that exalts the Holy Spirit's role. The verse is only a repetitive construction referring to the Holy Spirit twice. So when it says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, it is saying the same thing, to be born by the Spirit of God, and it is doubling it up for emphasis. Now, is that found anywhere in the Bible? Yes. Have you ever said, Abba, Father? Same thing. Abba, Father. The word Abba is Aramaic for Father. It's just Father, Father in two languages. And we, we have that example of Abba Father. Jesus, just a few chapters over, a few pages over, is going to explain that the word water stands for the Spirit in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. I've read those to you before, and um, John chapter 7 and verse 37, in that In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's the word we want, water. Now we have in parentheses an explanation by the Holy Spirit for us. But this spake he of the Spirit. When Jesus used the word water, he was speaking of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Ghost was given to men as their personal companion in Acts chapter 2 as the, the God's reward for baptism. Earthly birth produces only flesh. Birth by water and spirit produces spirit. There are more uses of water for spirit in the Old Testament, and this is very important. Isaiah chapter 44, Ezekiel chapter 36, the the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uses water as a symbol for the Holy Spirit, which, think about it, who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to, but Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, would have understood that water faster and quicker and more instinctively from his knowledge of the Bible than you might when you start, especially if you're reading through in order because we haven't got to John 7 yet. I am not taking the time right now because of the time 
to go look at Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4, and Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28. Here's where I want to turn you to next. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus 3, 5. Now, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And already in this sermon, I have mentioned to you 1 Corinthians 2.13 that tells us comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We have the word water and the word spirit tied together. And I'm saying that there's only one birth in John 3.5. It's the new birth. It's regeneration. And it's done by water and spirit. And it's a repetition of the same person by mentioning the agent used for cleansing and the person of the Godhead that did it. Are you with me? Water is the agent of cleansing. Is olive oil the agent of cleansing? Okay, oil is not an agent for cleansing. Not the, not the body, but water is. Water is an agent for cleansing. And water is a symbol. Jesus said so of the Spirit. Water is a symbol of the Spirit. Isaiah said so. Water is a symbol of the Spirit. Ezekiel said so. And so we've got a doubled up effort like Abba Father to say about regeneration, it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in the symbolic agent that represents him and in his name. We flip, we, we say, Lord, show me a cross-reference other than Mark 16, 16 for John 3, 5. And he does. He gives us Titus 3, 5. Right. Will, will, you, will you trust 1 Corinthians 2, 13 that we are supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual, spiritual words with spiritual words, and here's what we get. Titus 3, 5. The same subject is under consideration. Our regeneration. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There are not two events in Titus 3, 5. There's one event. The one event is our regeneration. The one event is our being born again. The one event is being quickened. The one event is being made all over new again. But notice how it is stated that it is by the washing and the Holy Spirit. So instead of the agent, water, being lined up beside the Holy Spirit, the action of washing is used by using the word washing. The action of cleansing, renewing is used. So Titus 3, 5, now for those of you that are into numerology, notice John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. Does that add weight to my argument? Take me out back. Beat me with thorns. I just thought I'd throw that in. You know, if I were to pull something like that, you would know I, you know I was straining at something smaller than that. Um, Titus 3, 5 is beautiful. It is, there's one event... It's our vital salvation, and it's described in two ways that are tied right together. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There's the Holy Spirit named, and there's the action, washing, that cleanses and makes us vitally new. In John 3, 5, instead of the action, it's the agent of water that's used for that work. And so it's a doubling of effect and emphasis to us about the Holy Spirit. 
There's only one event in both places, and there's only one operative source, and that is the Holy Spirit of God, mentioned under two different forms for us to get the message loud and clear. Nicodemus would have understood it because Nicodemus knew that water was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, from time to time, and I hardly ever use this, say this in the pulpit, we will go look at our favorite commentators. And we have a list of eight to ten commentators that we trust the most. <laughs> what does that mean? We trust them a little. Eight commentators, the ones I'm listing right here are the eight that I looked up that dealt with the verse. Elbert Barnes, John Kelvin, Adam Clark, John Gill, Jameson Fawcett Brown, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, and John Trapp. None of them had even heard, thought of, or mentioned the idea of there being amniotic fluid in John 3.5. So, Johnny, 40 years ago when you believed that, no one had ever come up with that before. Albert Barnes makes water to equal baptism. The other seven, even though they are baby sprinklers, except for John Gill, the other seven know that the water is the Holy Spirit being redoubled for emphasis, even though they are baby sprinklers. That should say quite a bit. John 3, 5 Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God was by believing on Jesus Christ and being baptized and repenting for your sins. We showed that last Sunday. But this requires being born again to enter into the kingdom of God because there is, there is more than one phase of the kingdom of God. And one is internal and regenerate, and one is external and just mere professing. Did Jesus tell his apostles in Matthew chapter 13, that uh, there's a whole lot of fish that end up in the net, but they need to be separated, that some belong and some don't belong? Did he say that, did he say that, the, that the kingdom of God is like a, a man sowing seed in his field, but at night while he's in bed, an enemy comes along and sows tares in alongside the wheat, and the two have to be separated? This is the, this is the regenerate aspect of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of the real ones. Many profess, many enter in, they went out from us because they were not of us. Right. And so we have here, we start out with the fact of verse 3, teaching us that it's a kingdom that you cannot see without being born again, and this is one you cannot enter into, and that's the invisible, regenerate aspects of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my kingdom doesn't come with observation. It, it only comes with, with spiritual observation, as verse 3 teaches us. The most important thing to us, are we born again? Absolutely the most important thing. And it's not what we just did. We cannot be proud or haughty that we have blown away 95% of Christians in their misunderstanding of John 3, 5. The most important thing is, are we born again? Right. Are we walking in the Spirit? Because since the Spirit is emphasized, then we would naturally turn, we would spiritually turn to those passages of Scripture that describe our role and relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And it says, if you live in the Spirit, you should also walk in the Spirit. So are you walking in the Spirit by bearing the fruit of the Spirit, showing that you're alive in the Spirit, you are truly born again? You can't refer back to your baptism. That's not doctrine. That's not true doctrine. You can't refer back to your faith. You've got to refer to your life. Do you have the evidence in your life that you're born again? Love. Do you love the brethren? I mean the way the Bible defines love. It is not based on words, but in truth and in deed. 
Do you love the brethren? Joy. Are you joyful and happy and glad in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is life a pain to you? Love, joy, peace. We can work ourselves through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Have you mortified all the works of the flesh? If you haven't put them to death and are daily not putting them to death, there isn't evidence in your life that you're born again because you're not making a war against that flesh to follow the Spirit. Have you said that Jesus is Lord of your life and does your life back it up? 1 Corinthians 12, 3 tells us that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And that means a whole lot more than just the enunciation or the pronunciation of the word or the words, Jesus is Lord. It's to live as he's the Lord of your life. It's to obey him in every part of your life. This is how we know we're born again. We go to 1 John, the epistle written by this same Bible writer, and he says, we know that if you do righteousness, you're born of him because he's righteous. He says, we know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. We know that we're born again because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We know that we're born again because we do not habitually keep sinning because there's a born again seed in us that will not allow us to sin like that. Lord, help us to make sure of the most important part of this whole thing, and that is, are we born again? John 3, 5. Thank you, blessed God. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. May the Lord add a whole lot that is needed to the preaching of his word. Amen.